Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. I'm an oceanographer. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have long format, relaxed conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. I like to call it climate relevant. Today I have a special guest for you and a special topic. I have Mike Meredith, who is also an oceanographer at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. We've already recorded his individual episode a while ago. You can go back through the, not exactly archives, but you can just scroll through the episode list and see his episode if you want to hear about his pathway into science and some of his kind of scientific ideas and what his experience has been like in the field. But for this episode, we wanted to focus on the special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate. Mike served as the coordinating lead author with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is the body that puts together these reports. And in the episode, we talk a lot about his kind of pathway into that role, how he found out about that role, and what that experience was like for him. I found it really interesting. I mean, I know overall how the IPCC report process works, but I haven't been on the inside, so to speak. And by the inside, I mean I haven't been in the room with the people making the decisions. So it was really interesting getting his perspective on what that was like. You can find Mike Meredith on Twitter at Meredith underscore MMM. Yup, three M's in a row at Meredith underscore MMM if you'd like to hear more from him. And just as a coincidence, a couple of days before I recorded this intro, Mike was awarded the Polar Medal by the Queen. So congratulations, Mike. Right, so what I thought I would do with this intro is I thought I would read a little bit from the summary for policymakers, because in this interview, we don't really talk about the content of the report that much. We do a little bit, some of the big kind of take-home messages from it, but I thought some context would be useful. So if you don't want to hear the summary, that's cool. Just skip ahead to the music, and that's when the actual interview, the conversation, I should say, starts. So I just pulled this from the summary for policymakers for this special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate, SROCC, you'll see it referred to. So like I mentioned, this report was prepared by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the role of that body, the IPCC, is to summarize the present state of climate science. As many of you know really well, that's a regular activity. There are regular IPCC reports. But this particular one was a special report commissioned as part of a set. There were also other new special reports that were commissioned. There's the special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius and on climate change and land. If you look through the summary of policymakers, which is, of course, that's just available on the website, these are some of the bits of text which are in bold, like this one, for example, the first one. Over the last decades, global warming has led to widespread shrinking of the cryosphere, where here the cryosphere includes ice sheets, ice shelves, glaciers, sea ice. So there has been mass loss from ice sheets, from glaciers, with very high confidence, reductions in snow cover and Arctic sea ice extent and thickness, and increased permafrost temperature with a very high confidence. One of the things that is really nice about the IPCC report is that 
every scientific statement you see, you'll see a parenthetical statement next to it. Typically, when I say everyone, it's certainly true in the summary for policymakers. Maybe not every single statement in the entire report, but certainly in the summary for policymakers, there's a parenthetical statement that tells you the level of confidence that we have in that claim. So you'll see statements like very high confidence, high confidence, likely, and uh, other things like that. Virtually certain is one of them that you'll see. And that gives you a sense of not only what our scientific understanding is, but the kind of confidence or uncertainty that the scientific community has about some of those statements. It is virtually certain that the global ocean has warmed unabated since 1970 and has taken up more than 90% of the excess heat in the climate system. Since 1993, the rate of ocean warming has more than doubled. Marine heat waves have very likely doubled in frequency since 1982 and are increasing in intensity. By absorbing more carbon dioxide, CO2, the ocean has undergone increasing surface acidification. A loss of oxygen has occurred from the surface to a thousand meters depth. Yeah, so that figure, that 90% figure, is really baffling. Not, not baffling. Baffling is not the right word, but it's really striking to me. And I saw recently there's this other report that I was looking at, the, what's it called, the 2018 State of the Polar Oceans Report. And in it they have this figure that tells you that, by the way, if you think about all that heat, all that heat that, been, that has been added to the ocean from climate change, if you were to move all of that into the atmosphere... That won't happen, by the way. This is just a mental exercise. This is just a thought experiment to give you a sense of the scale of heat that we're talking about here. If you put all of the heat that has gone into the ocean since the start of the Industrial Revolution and you were to move it suddenly into the atmosphere, then the atmosphere would warm up on average by 36 degrees Celsius. That's really hard to fathom. That's really hard to understand. So again, obviously, that's not going to happen. We're not going to suddenly have all of the heat from the ocean you know, jump into the atmosphere, but it just gives you a sense of the enormous scale that we're talking about here. And it also gives you a sense of we really want the ocean to continue absorbing heat and to continue performing this service for us. It's really doing us a, a favor, really doing us a big service by absorbing a lot of this excess heat that we're putting into the system. So continuing with the summary... Global mean sea level is rising with acceleration in recent decades due to increasing rates of ice loss from the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, as well as continued glacier mass loss and ocean thermal expansion. Increases in tropical cyclone wind and rainfall and increases in extreme waves combined with relative sea, ice sea level rise excuse me, exacerbate extreme sea level events and coastal hazards with a high confidence. And that obviously has a huge impact on the fundamental geography of our civilization, the geography of global civilization. We're organized. There's so many of us that live in these mega cities by the coast. You know, we rely on that. We rely on having a kind of stable coastline, but uh, that's, that's changing. We're going to have to adapt to that. We're going to have to do something in response to that. So let's see. Well, there's a lot of stuff about ecosystems, which because we really didn't talk about the ecosystem stuff that much, I think I will, I will skip that. And also Mike and I are, mostly physical scientists. Mike Mike does a lot of work with ecosystems people, and I've, I've done a little bit as well, but our expertise is certainly mostly physical. Let's see. So over the 21st century, you know, 
the, this century, the ocean is projected to transition to unprecedented conditions with increased temperatures, greater upper ocean stratification. That's the rate at which density changes. So like a really stratified fluid has a big change in density with depth. And if you've got really strong stratification, that kind of isolates the interior, the subsurface ocean from the atmosphere because of that rapid because of that intense, that high stratification. It will also see, the ocean will also see further acidification, oxygen decline, and altered net primary production. That's a, the process by which the, um, there's, there's photosynthesis, phytoplankton uh, through photosynthesis absorbs carbon. Marine heat waves and extreme El Nino and La Nina events are, with medium confidence are projected to become more frequent. The Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or the AMOC, which is often, it is considered part of the heat transport system that gets heat from lower latitudes to higher latitudes, is projected to weaken, projected to weaken, very likely. The rates and magnitudes of these changes will be smaller under scenarios with low greenhouse gas emissions, very likely. So that's, that's a key place to think about there, is that there is something that can be done about this, you know, we're on this trajectory towards a very, very different planet, towards a planet that, you know, we, we haven't tried to live on before. And it looks like there are a lot of different stressors on civilization and on our ecosystems and on kind of our, the, the way that we're living at the moment that uh, we would like to avoid. And the point is that something can be done about it, but the timing is very, very important. We've got to do this. We've got to start doing something really, really soon. And some of the some of that momentum is already there. Some of that process is already there. Some of the change is already starting to happen, which is encouraging. But it's, uh, it's time to go, in my opinion. Time to get going. Large-scale changes. Enabling climate resilience and sustainable development depends critically on urgent and ambitious emissions reductions, coupled with coordinated, sustained, and increasingly ambitious adaptation actions. Key enablers for implementing effective responses to climate-related changes in the ocean and cryosphere include intensifying cooperation and coordination among governing authorities across spatial scales and planning horizons, education and climate literacy, monitoring and forecasting, use of all available knowledge sources, sharing of data, information and knowledge, finance, addressing social vulnerability and equity, and institutional support are also essential. Such investments enable capacity building, social learning, and participation in context-specific adaptation, as well as the negotiation of trade-offs and realization of co-benefits, <laughs> this is starting to go long, it's very important, of co-benefits in reducing short-term risks and building long-term resilience and sustainability. Heck of a sentence there. <laughs> that one, that one's powerful and it went on for a while, but uh, good, good stuff. This report reflects the state of science for ocean and cryosphere for low levels of global warming, 1.5 degrees Celsius, as also addressed in earlier IPCC and other reports. So I think the point is that as part of the report, they've tried to identify some of the large-scale changes which need to happen. And I think for me, one of the big ones, I'm not an expert in this, but in a, a big one is, is finance, obviously. Uh, to, to me, like how, how large-scale investments are directed. Are large entities going to continue to invest in fossil fuel extraction and fossil fuel sources? Or are we going to start to see a shift towards more investment in cr clean energy sources, Green energy sources, that's kind of the same thing. But that's that's huge for me. And I, I think the 
that finance actually plays a really critical part of the story about transitioning into a, a world where we're not putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at this unprecedented rate and adding a lot of extra energy to the climate system and disrupting it. Okay, so I just I wanted to kind of give you the scientific background and the, the kind of summary for policymakers at that high level to kind of set the stage for the discussion. Because like I said, in the interview and the conversation, Mike and I mostly talk about his experience with it and his with a few kind of take-home messages from the report as well. Let's go for it. This is Mike Meredith talking about his experience with the special report on the oceans and cryosphere in a changing climate. Here we go. of coffee with breakfast mm. and then unless I'm having a really slow day I try and stick on tea thereafter so the um, coffee to kind of give you a yeah. kick <laughs> get me going in the morning mm. yeah. yeah that's pretty much it and then tea to level off do you find if you have coffee later in the day is it like harder to go to sleep or is it get, get jittery beyond, beyond about lunchtime I mean, I can have coffee with lunch and then generally it's fine. Yeah. If I have coffee in the evening, then um, it's definitely harder to fall asleep. Yeah. At home we have like um, decaf. Decaf. I'm not sure it's a lot of difference, to be honest, but somehow it just feels. <laughs> yeah. It feels better, I don't know. I kind of found something surprising. I uh, Speaking of tea, like I've been getting bad kind of gastritis, kind of like some irritation in my stomach there. And one of the things that I figured out that was kind of contributing to that inflammation, weirdly, is um, in the afternoons I had been drinking this black tea, like this really black tea. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I kind of normally think of tea as like fairly gentle overall. Yeah. <laughs> like, because I know the caffeine content's a bit lower than coffee. Um, but something about this tea, I noticed, like, oh, when I don't have that, I'm fine. <laughs> but if I do have that, I get, like, a lot of pressure here, and it just it is really painful and kind of bizarre. That's interesting. So it's not all tea, luckily. So yeah. um, I think, you know, my residence in the U.K. would be in jeopardy if it was all tea. Because it, like, <laughs> it would be like the U.K. rejecting me on a fundamental level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you could pass the written exam but fail the practical, basically. Which is, which is drinking tea without <laughs> getting indigestion. without getting indigestion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's not good. It's, I'll, I'll find a different tea that will, yeah. that will work out. Okay. Well, it's good yeah. that you good that you've identified the issue so yeah yeah that's right and certain beers like a really hoppy like the really hoppy beers also do it yeah so it's clearly a variety of things that can mm. potentially do it mm. um what have you been up to how are things going this week oh it's 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 okay um we had the meeting with david vaughan yesterday mm -hmm. um which was interesting this is not on at the moment is it? it's on at the moment okay so uh, uh, well i won't say too much then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i think people found it useful yeah um or at least you know interesting 
Uh, and what else have I done this week? Checking the galley proofs for the IPCC report. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's interesting in itself. So um, basically, you right now, you're all done with the actual process of responding to comments and getting the whole document together and uh, getting the actual report together. Yeah. It's now been approved. It's released. It's officially out in the world. Yeah. But the galley proof stage is just making sure that all the typesetting stuff has been done correctly and the, that no errors have been made in the kind of transcription. Exactly that. that. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah, the science uh, has all been approved by the United Nations governments. And the summary for policymakers, which is the bit that is most read because it's the most accessible part of it, um, that's the bit that they pay particular attention to yeah. um, and that getting that approved was a, an interesting process but it was approved so mm. it was great interesting how what was what was interesting about that well that was the meeting we had in in, in Monaco back in where, September yeah. in September exactly yeah. um, where the summary for policymakers has been given to all the UN governments in advance um, and then there's a big uh big plenary meeting where you go through it um, line by line, word by word, figure by figure. Mm. And any government can challenge any point or question any point or make suggestions about any point. Mm. And all the governments have to agree everything. Every word. Every, every word line, has yeah, to be agreed figure. by all of the governments. Mm. Um, and it's the right way to do it because ultimately what you don't want is then the report to be released and one government say, or any number of governments say, well, that's interesting, but we disagree. Right. Because this has to be accepted internationally for it to feed into the you know, UN policy-making process yeah. uh, in relation to climate. Um, so it's the right way to do it, but it does mean that it's very slow, very exacting. And you, um, and you were in the room. You were present for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all, yeah. Uh, all the all the coordinating lead authors were present, and some of the lead authors were present where they had sort of specific expertise that might be required to discuss certain points. Um, and yeah, it 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 was a kind of a four day process. Um, but when I say day, these are sort of abnormal days. These aren't nine to fives. Right. Unfortunately, these are. <laughs> Yeah, These are, um, I saw some pictures of you all late at night. I think you posted some just kind of working into the night and the small hours of the morning. Mm, well, the final day. I mean, we had one that went through to three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, relatively early in the process. And then after that, I think it was kind of 11 p.m. midnight finishes. But then on the final day, and you have to get it done within that time period. Mm. Um, on the final day, we started at eight in the morning. And we finished at 11 in the morning the following day. Oh <laughs> so it was kind of like a 27-hour day, in quotes. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, people were exhausted, uh, as you would expect. This is like but, a cram session at the highest level <laughs> with big yeah, implications. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have to do it because there's no alternative. But, it, you know, for those involved, it was pretty exhausting. Yeah, a bit so. Yeah. So yeah. what was your... The title of your your role because I know you were a, a coordinator one of the one of the big coordinators right like what was the what did your role look like 
So the, the official title is Coordinating Lead Author. Yeah. So every every chapter has got a certain number of lead authors. Yeah, maybe 10, 12, something like that. Um, and any number of contributing authors who are the people who sort of don't attend the meetings but get drawn in to provide specific text or specific right. advice on key points that their leaders add. They might write some of the text. They might provide some figures, I guess, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, they, they might provide you know a paragraph of text or they might be asked for specific advice on how to deal with the reviewer's comment or might be asked for a, the data to go into a figure or something like that. But they wouldn't see the whole chapter until it was released for review. Hmm. Whereas the lead authors, they attend all the writing meetings and they see the whole chapter and they're you know, responsible for kind of shaping it and deciding the balance of the content and you know, who the contributing authors should be for specific things um, and the overall plans for uh, how to take it forward, how to deal with the viewers' comments, how to you know, ultimately deliver the remit. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and from those lead authors, uh, each chapter has you know, typically two, maybe three, what are called coordinating lead authors. And it's their job to, as well as you know, contributing some of the science, some of the text, um, it's their job to kind of keep the show on the road right. and make sure that you know, we set deadlines, we adhere to the deadlines, put in place the process so that everything happens. Um, deal with any problems that crop up, you know, chair the meetings, yeah. these sorts of things. Um, a manager for the whole process, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a managerial role, but you've also got the scientific role from being the lead author, so it's very much a kind of hybrid of the two. Hmm. Um, and so you need, I guess, organisational skills and cat herding skills to be a coordinating lead author. Uh, there was, um, I've, I may have said this on here before, but you're just reminding me of... Um, a tweet that somebody, from, a more senior scientist from the Met Office, put out at, at some point. Um, or actually, no, sorry, it wasn't. It wasn't a tweet. It was something that happened in real life. Believe it or not, it was a real life comment that I actually heard with my ears in a room. Really? It was. Yeah. yeah it was, People still it do was, that. Uh, they do. I thought that was it's, kind of passe. <laughs> I, 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 it, it might be, but it's still fun. It's, still, <laughs> it's, it's, it's got some novelty. That's mm. like uh, that's going to be like retro. Like remember when we used to talk yeah, in rooms? Yeah, like, yeah. But, Never um, go. Oh yeah. Wow, I've forgotten about that. It was a, at a project meeting, and we were all going around the room introducing ourselves and saying what we worked on. So, hi, I'm Dan. I'm an oceanographer. And hi, I'm X. You know, I'm an atmospheric scientist. And we got to uh, this senior med office scientist. And I, 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 I forget who it was. I'll have to look it up. I feel bad about forgetting. But the senior scientist said, you know, hello, I'm X. Uh, track changes in word. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I just felt like you could probably relate to that. Um, uh, you know, yeah. Track chain, keeping track of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different yeah. changes and versions and suggestions and comments. There that, was that so was... much of that. There's so much track changes. <laughs> go blind staring at track changes. I mean, luckily, IPCC have got a very good document management system okay. that does version it's, control and all sorts of things. It's not just Word, it's beyond. Well, it beyond. uses Word. It uses Word. Um, but. In terms of archiving the word documents and tracking the changes in the word documents, it's, um, they've got quite a uh, quite a slick system for doing that. Actually, nice. it worked pretty well. Not like a GitHub repository or something, or bit, I mean, a yeah. bit more uh, professional than that, I suppose. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe more rigorous in some ways. I don't mm. know. Uh, so, how did you? If you don't mind me asking, like, how did you find yourself in that position of the 
coordinating lead author for the whole special report. Yeah. Uh, do you mean how did I get in the position or how yeah. did I find well, it once I was there? Did did somebody approach you or did did you approach the was there a call for was there an application process or There was. There was, uh, yeah. there was um there was an announcement. I mean, I guess this was 3 years ago now. Uh when they said that, you know, this, this report was commissioned by the UN as part of their IPCC work and what have you. Uh, and I think uh, the government of Monaco in particular you know, lobbied hard for a report about the ocean. Okay. And other people were lobbying for a report about the cryosphere and someone said these kind of connect quite strongly. So, yeah. um, so it, why, why Monaco in particular? Why do you think they were... Well, Prince Albert of Monaco mm-hmm. um, is a big supporter of um, ocean science, protecting the ocean, understanding the ocean, yeah, and his family heritage goes way back in that mm. that sort of um, legacy. Uh, I think he's Prince Albert II, the first Prince Albert, you know, was a huge supporter mm. of protecting the ocean, understanding the ocean, um, and it's, it's become a big uh, kind of... I suppose a family tradition, but also something you can tell that you know, he's personally passionate about. Mm. Um, and so they were trying to get this, trying to get protecting the ocean um, much more strongly represented at the policy level mm. internationally. Okay. And IPCC is obviously a, a big, uh, possibly the major vector for doing that. So right. I think that's why their interest was there. Because there was already a climate report which had a lot of ocean stuff in it, but it wasn't specifically focused on on the ocean well and indeed so. and this is and, and and because ipcc is not just the physical basis in terms of what's causing climate change and what are the mechanisms it's what are the implications for that yeah and the oceans are and the cryosphere as well um you know hugely impacted by climate change you know physically biologically the life in the oceans the services that they provide to the rest of the planet and that's the sort of thing that really hasn't been highlighted as much as it should have been, um, I would argue, in previous IPCC reports. And that's why this report was approved as being something that was you know, uh, especially worthwhile, I would say. Worth so, doing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So for you, so you applied for the, the role. There was a call out for yeah. coordinating lead, lead authors. Yeah. So you sent your... CV and <laughs> yeah, so there was a there was a call from UK government because um, the the UK focal point for IPCC is is Bayes, the government department, and they put out a call saying if you'd like to be considered, um, tell us who you are. <laughs> right, uh, and then I think that, this is a while ago now, but I think there's a little pro forma just where you you put in bullets about your background mm. and okay. what have you. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I, I threw my name forward, and then it was kind of. Um, and you probably mentioned oh, I've been managing projects for a while in different different scopes and different scales, and I've been coordinating various things. And yeah, so that you sort of probably yeah. put that foot forward, out, right? I would imagine. Well, there's you put that foot forward, and you also put forward the scientific foot. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, at that point in the process. I didn't really know enough about IPCC to know what it was that I would be best suited to doing, mm. if anything. Okay. Right. And they had options for all the different roles that you could nominate yourself for. So coordinating lead author or lead author or review editor, who's someone who just sort of oversees the, um, the review process and make sure it's all fully rigorous. 
And I didn't really understand exactly what these were or how they related. So I just ticked all the boxes and gave them <laughs> all the information I could think of and kind of just said, you decide yeah. if you want me at all, and if so, in what context. Apply for um, any job you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just sort of put the ball in their court and just said, this is me. You know, yeah. if you want me, great. If you don't, also great. I think that's um, I think that's a really good attitude to have in general for all job applications. <laughs> if you want me, great. If not, well then, fine. That's fine too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you can well, be detached, I think it helps you come across as more confident. And you know, uh, uh, and also it's it's one of those things. I think you've got to trust these people to make sensible decisions. Um, and if someone else has got a better skill set mm. for doing these things than you have. Uh, then that's fair enough, and it probably means it's not something you'd enjoy that much anyway. You know, it's true. Maybe Easy, easier said than done if you really want the job, if you really feel like you want it. But yeah. it probably is a, a wise position to say, well, just throw your hat in the ring, but you don't control the outcome, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Try not to stress out about it. Yeah. 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 If you can do that to some extent, I guess it's yeah. a, a, a good answer. So, was there like an interview? What was the sorting process like or some kind of the some sorting kind of, hat well I don't know how they did it but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> pull, pull I was put in Slytherin no I wasn't um, I, well Bayes you were put in charge of Slytherin <laughs> no no you're not a student uh, that, that makes right. me Snape I think yeah. that's, I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's my aspiration um, <laughs> he's not your not your archetype you're going for in no, life no I always saw myself as more of a Dumbledore but mm. you know I guess you can't fight the facts uh, <laughs> You can work on the beard. You can get the get the beard going. Could do. Yeah. Could do. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, you're, you're more of a Dumbledore. That's, that's fair. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. You're like Harry Potter, you are, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Bayes, I mean, they do, they do a sift, um, I, I guess, based on their own... Um, their own interpretations of the applications they receive, and then they push those forward to IPCC who made the final decisions. There's no interview. It's all okay. done kind of okay. um, a paper process. Mm. Uh, and then you just get an invite to participate. Uh, and that's it. Okay. Yeah, so some panel needed to make decisions based on, you know, uh, the applications you put in and, yeah. you know. So Bay, Bay's do it for the UK and they mm. sift out who they want from the UK and then the IPCC. And I think it's the co-chairs and the vice-chairs of the IPCC mm. who go through all the names that they're given because they have to make sure all the bases are covered across all the different chapters. Yeah. So um, even if they've got, you know, 10 very strong people and only one role, they can still only mm. pick one person. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really helpful if, if you ever get it, being on the other end of that selection process is so helpful because you run into that problem of like oh no I've got ten five you know whatever people who would be really good at this but I still have to make a decision yeah. based on something yeah. yeah yeah so what was that I mean I guess were you informed by an email or you know by a phone call or that must have been a, a interesting bit of information to get when they told you that that you got the job or when they offered you that position. Yeah, it was. It was it was by email. Hmm. Um, and you just got this email saying, we'd like to invite you to be a coordinating lead author. We would like to invite you to drop most things in your life for the <laughs> yes. next three years. We would like to own you for the next two and a half years. Um, yeah. <laughs> and 
Yeah, I mean, like I say, at that time, I didn't know that much about the IPCC process. So the first thing I did was go and look at what a coordinating lead author actually was. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, hmm, okay. Uh, and then you just reply and say yes, and that's it. Really. Mm. Then you, you know, and you're in the process and your life changes. You're entrained into the mixed layer of the IPCC process. You get entrained into the mixed layer of the IPCC process. Where you're subject to random mixing and you have to uh, make some sense. I'm going I'm to take this analogy too far unless uh, you stop me. Keep it's pushing gonna it. Be like, keep okay. pushing it. Keep and then going. you get subducted into uh, the it's waters of It's turbulent. It's yeah, certainly turbulent. This is um, such a niche joke right now. I know, <laughs> I know. Like, it's really specific. Listeners so like, are turning off in droves right now. <laughs> we probably lost them 10 minutes ago. It's okay. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry. Well, both of them. Oh, yeah. uh, all, all both of them. All both <laughs> all of them both have both now turned off. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So what was, uh, how did it start? What were some of the first things you had to do? Like, I'm kind of curious about your experience as, as new coordinating lead author. You had looked up what it meant and... Yeah. You know, so I guess IPCC must have already had some kind of vision for here's here's the rough time scale that we want this report to be released on. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, in the letter inviting you to be coordinating lead author, they they map out the time scale um, and tell you when the the lead author meetings are happening. I think at that point, the first two that even had venues arranged for them. Mm, okay. Um, the last two, because there was four in the process before the approvals. Um, I think the first two of the venues had been arranged. The last two were more um, more indistinct at that time. Um, and so the first thing you do is you block out those dates in your calendar and mm. you apologise to your family that you're going to be away for those times. Right. Um, and I think the next thing I did was... Um, Where were they, those, those first two meetings? The first one was in Fiji. Yeah. The second one was in Ecuador. Okay. So these are yep. not meetings on your doorstep. No. Um, it involves a lot of travel, this process. Uh, yeah, and the idea being it's international. It involves lots of different countries, so you're not going to get away from, like, flying people in and, you know. No, yeah. I mean, and, and because it's international, you have to be in different places at different times, yeah. and yeah. it's good to go to countries that have specific concerns around the things that you're writing about as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Fiji, that's on their doorstep, you know, rising sea level. Sea level rises on their doorstep. It's, um, you know, they've got as much interest as anybody in, yeah. the, in that issue, for example. Mm. Um, and, you know, the countries have got to be willing to host, um, you know, literally hundreds of people. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the meetings move around and um, that's the way it has to be. Yeah. In due course, I'm sure that there'll be more and more of these things done electronically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I didn't want to pose it as a gotcha question because it's not that kind of podcast, but I did I did wonder if you had thoughts about, that's obviously a lot of carbon, right, for flying people around the, the planet internationally. And, it, um, is. And, it is. And I'm, not, and I'm not putting you on the spot to suddenly have a great you know answer for that, but mm-hmm. that is something that... I know kind of the science community has been thinking more about, like even in relation to the kind of annual meetings like AGU and EGU, yeah. does everyone necessarily need to fly to San Francisco every every year or can we do more of that remotely? Yeah. Um, there's still no substitute for being in the same room with somebody at the at the at present. Yeah. You know, but I guess it's something you have to balance out. So I, I know 
there's absolutely, I'm sure, value in being in the same room with the other authors and the other coordinating authors for the different chapters. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just a Skype call won't, won't cut it sometimes, but but we do have to balance that with the carbon emissions. I don't know. I should I should let you go. What do you uh, talk? I should let you talk about that. No, no. I, I I agree agree with what you said. To be honest, um, you know, the direction of travel with these things is that more and more of these things will be done electronically rather than in person. Um, and you know that's right and proper, uh, but there are certainly at this point in our in our history that there is no alternative for some things rather than having face to face meetings where you can sit around a table for hours at a time mm-hmm. and thrash things out and decide things and you know scribble on whiteboards and all of this stuff yeah. um, and go get a coffee together and, and go and get a coffee together and talk informally with people as yes. well when you need to and you know sometimes have confidential conversations in the margins about how you're best going to approach issues and things like that. Body body language. You can get people's body language and facial expressions a bit easier. Yeah. And that's important. Absolutely. And we did, you know, during the, during the, the writing of the, the chapter that we did, you know, we had, um, conference calls, Skype calls on, on a weekly basis. Um, as well as these, you know, lead author meetings that we had, you know, in person. Um, so these weekly calls are, you know, good examples of us where we can progress things electronically. We yeah. did, but by themselves, they wouldn't have enabled us to write the report that we did. Mm. And ultimately, it, it was, you know, you have to think what is what is the the greater good here? You know, for the report to exist, these meetings had to happen. Yeah. Um, and the report will hopefully, well, it now feeds into the UN process and you know climate policy negotiations. Um, so for the greater good, it kind of had to be done. But like I said, there is this direction of travel, and in future, as as technology progresses, more of it will be done electronically. I don't think they'll ever remove the need for in-person meetings. Yes, yeah. uh, so not in the foreseeable future. No, until we can go full hologram, then they might <laughs> <laughs> full Star Trek style hologram. Yeah, <laughs> that, might, that might work. Yeah, a little bit. well, it might do. It might do. Um, yeah, so so Fiji and then another location. W- were the chapters already kind of decided, or did you all have to say, right, let's have these kind of chapters. Let's decide on the structure of the report. I guess that, that probably must have happened early on in the process. The chapters were decided in advance. They were, okay. So when they decided to have the report, um, when the UN decided that, to have the report, they held a, a scoping meeting um, whereby they got a, a collection of experts, um, some of whom became authors, some mm-hmm. of whom didn't. Um, and they scoped out how the report could be broken down into chapters right? and the general themes for what each of those chapters should cover. Okay. So that's kind of helpful. It already had some shape to it. You didn't have to start from scratch and come up with a, a general shape for the report. Not no. completely. Yeah. Not, not for the yeah. report as a whole. Um, I, I think pretty much all of the first meeting aside from learning about the IPCC process, but I think most of the first meeting um, was spent going through what the contents of our chapter would be. Mm. Um, And we had the scoping document as kind of a starting point, um, and there's lots of good stuff in there, Mm. but, you know, with the authors in the room that we then had, um, we wanted to go through it and make sure that it made sense and we could see where it connected to other chapters and we could... Uh, spot any gaps that the scoping might have missed um, or anything that was, you know, written to the scoping that might not be a, 
you know, a global priority, which are the things we're trying to draw out in particular. Mm. So it's really taking that as a starting point and shaping it in the way that we thought it it should be uh, should be constructed. Right. And then we had to re- you know report that in plenary because uh, it's got to line up with all the other chapters mm. and connect to all the other chapters in a, in a coherent way. How did uh, how did you, as a specialist, you know, you're an oceanographer, um, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I remember that vaguely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, how did you, as a, a specialist? I mean, obviously, you have lots of project management experience, but I'm wondering how you've found and how you approach that process of okay, I I have my narrow specialty, like all scientists do. We drill down into something pretty specific. Yeah. How did you approach that process of okay, I need to wrangle this very wide remit of lots and lots of different disciplines yeah. and, you know, and, and help it all funnel into this report in a, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. So what was your, what was your kind of broad approach to that? Well, I think, um, I mean, I was, I was, yeah, we were given, we were given a kind of remit and we were giving, um, experts and you know, a writing team mm-hmm. with expertise across all of those points in the remit. Um, pretty much there were a few gaps that we had to kind of fill hmm. um, I think the approach really you know what we what we did was try and get those experts to become leaders for the chapter mm-hmm. in those areas yeah. where they have um, you know specific skills themselves and they know who the other people are that they need to talk to in the community to mm. make sure it covers um, all the points that need to be covered yeah um, there were one or two areas where we didn't have in our writing team uh, we didn't have that expertise necessarily in the room. Now a couple of people uh, stood up and said, okay, I can take responsibility for that, not based on my own expertise necessarily, but by talking to the experts in the mm. community as contributing authors and drawing that in. Um, and that worked pretty well. Um, but you know, with the with the diverse team, they all engage very well um, from the outset. I think, and they all, um, I think, the key thing was it was to try and make it coherent. Because you know, what you don't want is one section on you know Joe's expertise and one expert on Jane's expertise. And weird and titles for sections. I, I know. <laughs> I'm trying not to be specific here, and I'm, I'm you know I'm picking names where, where yeah. we didn't have authors called those things, so <laughs> that's why I'm picking those. Yeah. But um, you know what we didn't want was just a load of individual essays stapled together. Right. We wanted right. a coherent chapter mm. where the messages that come out of it were coherent and compelling and draw from all the levels of the chapter and all the different aspects of it's, the chapter. Sounds like it's an editorial kind of role. Very edit- that's the, that reminds me of that editorial process. It's yeah. editorial and it's also kind of um, strategic, I think, in that you're trying to sort of scope out a vision. And I think that's one of the things, you know, we did it as a group. And one of the things we kept coming back to was, you know, what's... What's the narrative for the report as a whole? And what's the narrative for our chapter within that? Mm-hmm. And how do all the individual bits we've got fit into that narrative? Mm. Um, and by keeping coming back to that at a regular basis, on a, on a, on a regular uh, interval, we, we actually managed ultimately to keep ourselves on track pretty well. So we didn't have, you know, Endless amounts of extraneous material that was, you know, technically correct, but actually quite irrelevant. 
um, and we didn't have any big gaps from this narrative that we were trying to construct about uh, you know the polar regions and why they matter, who they matter to, mm. how they're changing, why they're changing, uh, and ultimately what can, what could be done about it, mm. um, and what are the obstacles. Um, that's the sort of narrative we're trying to construct, and so um, so we, we you know what we didn't want was a section on the ocean, and then a section on ice, and a mm. section on wildlife, and right. a section on right. you know you, you have to partition the material some way, but what you don't want to lose is this narrative because mm. um, that's ultimately what enables you to pull out the things that really matter. Yeah, the themes that cut across all of the. Well, at least many of the chapters. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that makes absolutely. sense. I like your description of this process as very community-driven and very, you have to rely on this big team of authors. You have to rely on their expertise and their, you're not exactly, you're kind of delegating, but people are stepping up and taking leadership roles. And one of the themes on this podcast has been just how much that community element comes up, yeah. you know, how science doesn't happen in a vacuum it doesn't happen in isolation like it depends on having a healthy thriving scientific community it, you know it's not just driven by individual mm. geniuses mm. um you know it's in, driven by that collective effort of we're all constructing something together and hopefully we're all adding useful pieces to this larger construction yeah. uh, of science that we're putting together uh, so yeah you it started to take shape, I guess, it sounds like, as these different authors and lead authors worked on their sections. What did you kind of um, learn along the way? What were some of the things that, was there anything that surprised you that you weren't expecting in terms of the, the process? We can talk about the science bit too as well, but yeah, I, I'm kind of yeah. also curious about your experience. Uh, in terms of the process, I hadn't fully appreciated I think quite how intensive it is mm. and it's and it's very much in bursts um, where you know you have a deadline you, know, you, you have your sort of lead author meeting at the start and there's a lot of scoping out what you're going to do what you want to do uh, and a lot of sort of just getting to know each other these people you're going to be working with very closely in fact for the next two years um, and the other coordinating lead author on the Polar Regions chapter was um, Martin Summercorn, who I'd never met before. He's, a, he's an Arctic uh, guy at WWF. Um, I'd never met him before. And so, you know, that was interesting, um, just meeting him for the first time and talking to him about how are we going to approach this? How are we going to try and make this all work between us? Um, and his skills and insights are actually quite complementary to mine. You know, he's the other hemisphere mm. on the sort of conservation side of things rather than the physical science. Um, uh, but, he, you know, he got very strong management skills. Uh, so it was actually, you know, he was a great appointment to that role, certainly. Um, in terms of surprises, I think, you know, I knew going into it, it was going to be a lot of work. Um and everyone who's done it before says, oh, it's a lot of work. Um, and that didn't scare me because I'm not actually frightened by work. But I think the fact it's so intensive for um, you know, periods of several months, because you have to, what you have to do is you have to deliver what's called a zero order draft quite quickly. And that's a, kind of like a, a rough outline of what you're going to do. 
um, and that's a hard deadline. And then you've got to, then you've got a few months, and you've got to deliver what's called the first order draft, which is your first go at doing that. And then you've got to deliver a second order draft a few months later, mm-hmm. and then you've got to deliver a final draft a few months after that. And this this process covers you know two years with the lead author meetings interspersed. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a writing phase, and each of those goes to you know, review. So um, the initial draft is just kind of reviewed internally because that's kind of the scoping plus bones, you know, flesh on the bones, I suppose. The first order draft and the second order draft and the final draft, they go to review internationally and you get thousands and thousands, and you literally thousands of review comments. I think it was uh, 31,176 is the number I found on the website. For that, the <laughs> that was for the report as That's a whole. for the report as a whole. Okay, yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, for the Polar Regions chapter, we had, from memory, about 5,300 comments from the first order draft and the second order draft. And on the final draft, which is reviewed by governments, um, I think we had fewer comments on top of that, but... Still several hundred. Who's making the comments? Where do those come from? Um, a huge diversity. Um, so for the first order draft and the second order draft, uh, anyone from the community uh, can sign up to be an expert reviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, they will then receive the chapters that they want to review and they can enter as few or as many comments as they like. Um, so a large number come from uh, practicing scientists. So it could be academics in universities or institutes or wherever. Um, and some return just a single comment about something that is uh, you know close to their heart, mm. which is fine. Others return you know dozens or even hundreds of comments um, from the you know potentially the report as a whole, if they've got time to read it. I don't know how they do, but some of them do. Um, but there's also policymakers and people from industry and people from other spheres who've got interest in um, climate change and what it means for them and how it can be handled. Uh, and some of the comments are very technical and specific, and other comments are um, you know, much more general. They could be, you know... I read this and it made no sense. Can you write it more clearly? Uh, which you think, I can try. <laughs> um, so uh, the comments come from all over. Um, so, but in the final draft, sorry, in the, in the second order draft and the final draft, uh, that's when the government comments really start coming through. Okay. Um, and these are the, the governments that ultimately have to approve the report right. um, from you know, via the UN process. So hopefully um, when you have that final meeting, there are no huge surprises, I guess, because they've been commenting along the way. Uh, uh, well, I mean, the idea that is that you know, they, com- they comment along the way, and by the time you get to the final process, that there's at least something there that they feel they can actively engage with, yes. rather than it being something completely different from what they were mm. hoping for in the first place. Right, um, yeah. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but um, at that stage... Um, it should have gone through, you know, lots of government departments in lots of different countries. And um, how did you all? Handle one one thing I will yeah. add, if I, if I can, yeah. one, one of the nice things about the review process, which I think was different from previous IPCC reports, is that uh, APEX, the Association for Polar Early Career Scientists, um, was directly involved in the review process as an organisation. 
So instead of um, individual early career scientists having to sign up as expert reviewers, which they might have felt, you know, a little bit inhibited about, depending on how, I guess, how confident they are in themselves. Um, Apex was invited to be involved as an organisation. Mm. And then they organised um, a review process amongst their members uh, and gave all these review comments en masse mm. uh, as Apex. And I thought that was, and it made more work for us as, um, mm. as authors. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was a really great way of, you know, in training them and hopefully getting them on board with, you know, the future of IPCC and building capacity in that area and showing that they do have useful things to contribute because a lot of the comments that they made were very well-informed, uh, very constructive and ultimately mm. made the report stronger, which is, which is what you want, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, often, like, PhD students and early career people, they still are spending the majority of their time doing the research and reading the literature and really digging into it. Whereas I guess as you get more senior, you take on more management and and levels of responsibility. And it's not that you never, it's not that you lose touch with the science part. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the way in which you engage with it is different. Yeah. So you could imagine an early career researcher might have a really good comment about especially if it's about the specific system that they're working on. Yeah. They know it inside and out. Absolutely. And they know everything about it. Yeah. So that does sound useful, having that umbrella organization to try to encourage early career people to, you know, to get involved. How did you, so how did you all deal with the tens of thousands of comments? What, I guess that was another process of delegation, but it's still a daunting task. It's very daunting. Um, it was, I mean, that was one of the surprises was the number of comments that we received. Uh, and it was delightful in one way because it meant that the community really cared about what we were doing, you know, giving up their time voluntarily to read and help and, you know, give constructive input. Um, but like you say, I was surprised at the number and it was daunting because, you know, when you write a journal paper, mm. you get... You know, if you get 30 comments from the reviewers, you, you feel a bit hard done by it. And, you know, you go, oh, okay, I'll deal with it. But, you know, uh, when you get, you know, two and a half thousand in one review round, you, you think, hmm, how are we going to do this? Orders uh, of magnitude more. Orders comments. of magnitude more. Yeah. Um, and what you do is you just have to be systematic. You look through the comments and you divide them up based on expertise. So who in the author team has got the expertise to handle that comment? You know, does it relate to the chapter as a whole or just a specific part of it and who's leading that specific part? Um, and you can draw in coordinating authors, uh, sorry, uh, con contributing authors. If it's a technical thing where the expertise lies outside the immediate author team, um, and you just have to be prepared to put a lot of time into it because mm. every, every comment has to be answered in terms of how you've addressed it in the chapter or why you don't think actioning it would help the chapter. Um, you can't just leave a blank. You've got to actually yeah. say what you've done and how. And it becomes a, a vast amount of work. Yeah. Uh, so you, you you need to put an awful lot of time aside to do that. Are they anonymous or do people decide if nope. they want to be? Nope. It's, it's attributed to, so you know who said it. You know yeah. who said it, and it, it, it all becomes completely public. Mm -hmm. um, so you know who said it, and your response, uh, it all goes into a big spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet is published. So mm -hmm. at every stage you can see who said what and how it was handled. Mm 
Um, are there any particularly memorable ones that uh, that you are comfortable talking about? Um, <laughs> Not necessarily good or bad, just like, I don't know, something that stands out about. I mean, there's a huge diversity. I mean, like I say, this, this process is open to anybody. So the vast majority of comments were well-informed scientific comments or comments about policy relevance and so on. The fact it's open to anybody means that, you know, you do get comments from people saying, I don't believe in climate change. Um, right. And then, then you think, well, how, how does this, how do we, how do we respond to this? Yeah. And, you, you know, you can give a detailed response about the key papers that show that climate change is real and show that it's happening and traceability and all these things. And, and that's, ultimately, that's what you have to do because yeah. you can't just write, well, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> because, you know, you, you have to provide the audit trail. You have to provide the evidence. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot more work. Um, but ultimately, everything has to be defensible yeah. um, at UN level, uh, and yeah, and it's right that everyone should have their say. You know, if people think, you know, if people have uh, particular opinions that aren't necessarily mainstream, they still should have the right to express those and be part of the dialogue. Um, yeah, absolutely. I I do. I really agree with that. I think my one asterisk is I am kind of. I'm sort of concerned with the, um, well, some, there's some folks express this like distrust in experts and expertise and the very idea of expertise. And that's kind of concerning on a, on a social level. I'm not talking about that particular individual comment that we just discussed. I just mm. mean mm. that I, but, but that's not the sort of thing you can deal with in a single report like this. So. Obviously, you you just provide the best response that you can, and you yeah, try absolutely. To... I mean, I do wonder sometimes if we've yeah, you're right that that sometimes the word expert can provoke a bit of a backlash mm-hmm. in some people's minds, um, and I do wonder if we've framed that sort of um, that sort of role incorrectly. Uh, I think some people regard it almost as a hierarchical thing. Mm. You know, they hear the word expert and they say, well, why is that guy better than me? And I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be. Um, And I just wonder if we framed it incorrectly. Um, The word itself seems to have connotations that people don't like. Right. And uh, I don't know what the answer is, but I I just wonder if you've got that wrong somewhere. Ideally, part of what I like about science is that in principle... Certainly the results of it and the thought processes behind it, ideally they would be available to anyone who wants to spend the time digging into it and thinking about it and looking at it. Yeah. So ideally we would put all of that out there, make it as public as we as we conceivably as we feasibly can. Yeah. And I know that that comes along with this challenge of people don't necessarily have a ton of time to digest a lot of information. So it's also kind of on us to try to offer distilled versions of what we are trying to say and the sorts of results we're trying to to pin down. But I think putting as much of it out in the public as we can makes sense. So open access journals and trying to be very transparent with our thought process and our logic, yeah. that's, that's all important. Science education is important, just general science education. Um, having a more kind of overall scientifically literate um, society, like basic education. <laughs> so I think, 
Yeah, I know what you mean, though, about for some folks, it seems to, to put them off or offend them a bit. Mm. And it's really not meant to be a hierarchical thing. I mean, the, the only reason that I am where I am is I'm kind of stubborn and I just get interested in something and just keep looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that doesn't make me better or worse than anybody. That's just a that's just how I seem to be. Yeah. And so I've tried to do something with it. Um, I, I think... I think also, you know, everybody's expert at something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the way we use the word for certain types of roles and not necessarily for other types of roles in society, I just wonder if we've got that wrong somehow. Mm. Um, you know, if, if we had something less divisive uh, or a term that we used less, less divisively, I just yeah. wonder if that would help. But I don't, like I say, I don't know. Specialist or something along the... Well, experienced or something. I mean, I I, I, I honestly can't think of what it it should be. But I think... I think in some people's minds it sort of flips a trigger where they hear the word expert and they think automatically um, that person thinks they're better than me. Mm. Even though the person who's thinking that you know, will be expert in something themselves, yeah. hopefully something that they do for, you know, gainful employ and helping society mm-hmm. and, you know, these things. Um, if we can come up with something that was, you know, better reflects that, then mm-hmm. I think it might be less um, less of an issue. I don't know. Sometimes part of that backlash, I, f- I suspect, I feel like is, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> don't tell me how to live my life. Yeah. I know how to live my life. I've carved out a path for myself. Yeah. And... I understand that impulse. I get that. I mean, we all kind of try to figure out how we can get through mm. in a uh, life that is, even under very good circumstances, can be pretty tough <laughs> to get through and to, to make the, the best stuff. Yeah. And so I, I think that that phrase sometimes does uh, evoke that feeling in people like, whoa, don't, you can't, don't tell me how to live. I want to live the way that I, that makes sense for, for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, but exactly. well, that's a, that's a big conversation that I think is interesting, but like, we're, we're not going to solve it right here. I wasn't proposing that we try to solve it right here, but no, it'd be good if we could, know. but, um, I suspect it, you know, it'd be a very long podcast if we tried to do that. Yeah. I'll set us a 10 minute timer and then by the, <laughs> end, of the, <laughs> by the end of that, we'll have it sorted. Okay. Like, okay. uh, yeah. Yeah, so the IPCC process. Why don't we talk about the science a little bit? I'm going to do a little thing where I'll talk about the report itself. I'll, I'll record that separately, so no okay. pressure to summarize the whole science of the report. I didn't, I didn't want to put that on you. I'm sure you could do it, but I didn't, I didn't want to. I wanted to talk about your experience more. Sure. But maybe I, wanted, I did want to give you a little bit of a chance to talk about the science. So maybe now that you've completed this big overview of the current state of the ocean, the polar regions, sea level rise, mountains, changing ocean ecosystems. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges to our understanding of the climate system? What challenges remain? What are some of the big gaps that are yeah. that still exist in our knowledge? So, I mean, in relation to the polar regions, um, the, the final section of the chapter, it's not a very long section because we, you know, none of them are. We were very constrained for space. The final section relates to key gaps and uncertainties. Um, And what we did was we looked at the information that we have, that we can say things about, um, in relation to how the regions are changing in physical aspects, biological aspects, 
uh, societal aspects. Um, and the projections that we have of how they're going to change in future. Um, but for some things, and, and, and for each of these changes, you ascribe a level of confidence. Right. So if, if the scientific evidence is as close to bulletproof as it can be, you can say this is very high confidence or even virtually certain. Um, if there's kind of very few papers on this and they kind of point in different directions, you kind of have to say, all right, this has got low confidence. Um, there's a, a process for going through for determining confidence levels, especially mm-hmm. where you've got quantitative information. Um, and what we did was we looked at what are the things that were, had emerged as being really important for the way the polar regions influence the planet as a whole, the people on the planet, and for which um, the actual detailed information that we have is just so clearly insufficient mm. that... Um, in our minds, um, and in the, you know, following the process, it should, these should be priorities. Uh, so, in terms of impacts on people and impacts on ecosystems, yeah, yeah, a lot exactly. of that data is lacking. A lot of the data is lacking, and a lot of the projections don't have sufficient skill to enable um, policy relevant actions to be taken mm. with the level of information that they probably, well, in some cases, definitely should be having. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in, in a little detail, it's things like um, the overturning circulation in the Southern Ocean. Um, that's a, you know, scientifically, it's a subject close to my heart, but we do know that um, it has a big impact on uh, the amount of heat that's drawn down from the atmosphere yeah. and the amount of carbon that's drawn down from the atmosphere. Because that involves upwelling of cold, old water. Yeah northward transport and then subduction back into the subsurface That's which right. can carry heat and carbon along with it as it descends into the interior exactly yeah exactly so it's uh, the, the southern ocean around antarctica is, is the key place globally where waters rise up from uh, a kilometer two kilometers down uh, and then reaches the surface and that water was last in contact with the atmosphere before the industrial revolution so there's only tiny amounts of human-produced carbon in that water or you know, human-produced heat from global warming. Um, but as soon as it reaches the surface and comes into contact with the atmosphere, that atmosphere has got tons of human-produced carbon mm-hmm. and large amounts of human-produced heat, and there's some very strong exchanges. But then, like you say, that water sinks back down into the interior and it takes some of that human-produced carbon and some of that human-produced heat with it. Yeah. So it has this huge global impact on the rate of climate change in the atmosphere. Um, and, and it matters hugely for things like ocean acidification and ocean ecosystems in the Southern Ocean too. Um, we understand some of the science about how this happens. You know, I've written papers on this, you've written papers on this, you know, several people have. We know that it's hugely important. But the models that we have, the global coupled climate models that we use for climate projections, typically they don't do this in a particularly smart way, mm-hmm. uh, representing this process. There's lots of uncertainty about how it might change in future. Some of that is how mixing occurs and where mixing occurs, yeah. where the different types of water go when they're first formed. Yeah, you know. exactly mm-hmm. right. Um, and it relates to kind of the small scale processes in the ocean, you know, these couple climate models have got 
grid sizes that are you know much bigger than some of the actual key processes happen at. So yeah. they they represent the, the models represent the effects of these processes, but they don't directly represent the processes. Um, and that means there's a, a level of uh, uncertainty about how well that those projections are in regard to this. Um, and in terms of yeah, understanding how this this uh, circulation just is changing, you know, we are way behind the curve. Mm. Um, you look at a place like the North Atlantic, where again there is an overturning circulation. Um, they have a nice array of instruments there. They're monitoring how this is changing. The North Atlantic is the easy problem compared to the Southern Ocean. The North Atlantic, <laughs> you know, it matters and they're doing a good job, but you know. For, for reasons to do with ocean dynamics and configuration of ocean basins, that's the easy problem. The Southern Ocean, on a global scale, is the more important problem, um, but it's a much, much harder problem to actually measure and understand the overturning circulation. Mm. So that was, we're digressing slightly, that was one of the things that we flagged as a key uncertainty. Um, in the physics in of the, the ocean. physics yeah. of the ocean. Yeah. There were other uncertainties we flagged to do with... Um, the amount of carbon stored in permafrost, uh, mm. you know, both terrestrial permafrost and submarine permafrost, uh, and how that's going to be activated, uh, how that's going to be released in future. Um, there's lots of uncertainties about uh, the, the ecosystem structure and how different levels of the ecosystem interact and what that means for how, um, how resilient they are to climate change, how climate change will be impacted at different levels. And there's also uncertainties around, you know, that what I thought of initially is the non-scientific aspects of this, but in fact they are. It's more on the sort of social science and governance side in terms of, you know, how will people's response to climate change change hmm. in future? And, and what are the best governance structures that we can have to enable um, effective action to be taken? You know, some of which might be similar to things we have today, some of which might be very different. Mm. But there's still, you know, in those spheres of research and activity, there's still an awful lot of um, thought and active process going on to try and try and bottom those out. So it's still yeah. ongoing trying to build up capability there. And in a lot of those cases, they can't uh, kind of cheat like we can. We have things like conservation of energy and conservation of momentum <laughs> and really nice physical laws with a long solid history that we understand pretty yeah, well yeah. yeah but in terms of how are people going to respond to different situations in the future that seems i don't know anything about that um i mean it's, it's not an it's not an area that i claim to know anything no. about um but there were um did you, yeah, there were authors on the team who did. Did you get exposed to anything in that realm specifically that surprised you? Can you think of any examples that you thought? I wouldn't say necessarily surprised, but I, I mean, I was, I mean, I guess I was surprised by how advanced the thinking is. And we had, you know, lead authors who were experts on, you know, human responses to climate mm. change and societal responses to climate change. You know, both on the large scale, you know, country level, international level, but also the level of, um, you know, local populations and indigenous populations, which is obviously very relevant, especially in the Arctic, uh, and how they're adapting their behaviour to the climate change that is mm. happening already, um, which is, you know, hugely important. Um, and it opens the door to the questions of, are they going to be able to adapt uh, to the climate change that's going to happen in future? 
and at what level and how and you know what what mechanisms are needed to support them how do you build uh, resilience into this into these communities so that they can um, cope with climate change uh, and I was surprised because because that side of things were, was something I had no experience of before um, I was surprised how advanced the thinking was you know that there's a lot of um, literature and there's a lot of um, research going on um, and it was all new to me so it was fascinating mm. the other coordinating lead author Martin was much more uh, attuned to that from his role mm. um, in the Arctic uh, than, than I was so I learned a lot and one of our authors was um, Gary Kofinas who, who's very expert in this as well um, but I was also I guess a little surprised how, how fluid it was there seems to be um it seems to be changing quickly and there seems to be um, an awful lot of diverse opinion. So there seems to be a lot of things very much unsettled in those areas still, um, which is why I guess you know, it's one of these areas that needs more attention going forward, certainly. Um, but for me, it was fascinating. Uh, and I think you know, for this report in particular, that the focus on indigenous communities that came out was... For me, it was one of the, the really strong things, both in terms of understanding um, the stresses and the risks that they're being exposed to, um, you know, now and going forward, but also drawing on their knowledge, because you know, this report took a, an approach from the outset of trying to combine what I always thought of as traditional scientific knowledge, you know, peer-reviewed papers in journals, that sort of thing, with indigenous knowledge hmm. and these things um you know they operate in very different ways but they are they are both very valuable to this exercise because the people who are you know in the arctic or other indigenous populations elsewhere but they are they are living climate change you know they're not just researching climate hmm. change they're living climate change and i know we are too to some extent but you know really not in the same way that they are hmm. if these people have traditional hunting practices or fishing practices and they've been disrupted by changes in the cryosphere or changes in sea ice mm -hmm. and they're adapting to those they have information just from their day-to-day -day lives um, that you know can help what i just referred to as the traditional scientific process mm -hmm. very very significantly if if they can be engaged um in a in, in a in a constructive way and that, and and what we saw, what I saw, was that they, they certainly want to be. And one, one of the phrases that stuck in my mind from an event that we had at the Arctic Circle meeting uh, in, in Reykjavik after the report had been released, um, there was a man from the, the, the Sami community there. Um, he was a reindeer herder. Um, and he gave a, a really wonderful talk um, that really resonated, I thought, with a lot of people in the room. One of the things he said was, um, you know, they're really keen for all this research about climate change and its impact to happen, um, but they want the research to include them, not to just be about them. Mm. And I thought that that really struck a chord with a lot of people. Um, and that, you know, this report, it certainly tried to do that. And I think, um, you know, in many respects, I think, you know, Possibly it was successful, but I think 
future reports and going forward, if they can develop that concept even further, that'd be even better. What would that look like? Just having having uh, folks from some indigenous communities involved with the process and involved with the um, well, I don't know the, the the structure of it or how things are presented. Uh, I think there's yeah potentially scope to do that. I mean, um, and, and and ensuring that those communities are engaged in um, the ongoing process. You know, from from the outset mm-hmm. when the report is conceived and scoped, um, you know, engaging with them about what are the particular pressures and risks that they're subject to and what would be you know, top of their priorities for what a report might seek to achieve. Right. And then engaging with them at the different stages of the report um, in terms of, you know, sharpening it and drawing in new information and information, you know, knowledge that they have um, right through to the final production. And I think, you know, Estrop did make some good steps in that regard. Um, so I think that was the right approach. Um, but if it can be done even more effectively in the future, I think that mm. would be beneficial. Do you have a sense of, now that the report has been out a couple of months, do you have a sense of how it's being received by the community and by various governments if they're engaging with it? And I don't know if you have a sense of how it's coming um, across. I, I mean, I, I get a bit of a sense of that. I think part... Yeah, you, you, when when the report is published, you get lots of sort of congratulatory messages, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. That's that's what you want to hear, having mm-hmm. poured your life and soul into it for yeah. two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most people, you know, when they say nice things about it, I like to think that they're, you know, being genuine. And I, and you know, it's been it's been through so much review that been through so much review that, you know, it has to be good to a level, you know. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there's been various events that I've been to and given talks at and what have you, and people, you know, they ask questions. Some of them are quite sharp questions in terms of why didn't you say more about X or why didn't you say more about Y or how do you defend the statement you made about Z? Um, I think the only... I wouldn't say negative comments, but the only sort of um, less than glowing reception I've heard has been when it's sort of been in a more political context mm-hmm. where the message that's come out hasn't sat well with uh, a particular group or other that their, um, you know, their modus operandi is taking them in a different direction to the, the way that the report is pointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's a harder engagement. Um, and I guess those, those organisations, you know, they, they can't argue with the scientific facts uh, in the report. The report has been through review and it's been approved by the UN government. So, you know, subject to any typos or whatever, which we've hopefully weeded out, it, it's now, that is the state of the art. But in terms of what you do with it, um, you know, what we need to do is hopefully for all organisations to take the messages on board and uh, shape their activities yeah. and their policies accordingly. Some are more open than others to that. You said they can't argue, but um, they, you're, you're, they can make an incoherent, <laughs> inconsistent <laughs> theological argument. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, 
when I say they can't argue, people can always argue. Sure. You're right. Um, <laughs> but if you believe in the scientific process and if you believe in, you know, the 31,000 review comments yeah. and responses and yeah. what have you, then the weight of scientific evidence behind this report is absolutely enormous. That's right. And anyone who puts their hand up and says, I think this is all wrong. What else do we have? I mean, it's either you go through a process like this where you get people who know stuff to write a document <laughs> and you get other people who know stuff to ask questions about it and you get everyone to agree to it. Yeah. What is the alternative? There is no alternative. It's either that or you're just kind of guessing and saying what you want to be true. I mean, yeah. this is like, this is what science is supposed to do. It's supposed to give us something that's robust about the world, about how the world works. Yeah. That's part of what I love about it. I think, I think that's exactly right. You either believe in evidence-based decision-making or you don't. And if you do, then this is the evidence. Yeah. And if you don't, then good luck because yeah. you're going to make, make some really wrong decisions. Yeah. You know? Just going to go with your gut and just hope yeah. that things turn out your way and yeah. uh, basically belligerently plow your way through yeah. <laughs> through and, decisions and you know you might get lucky and you know you make a right decision by accident but mm-hmm. you know, most of the time you'll make the wrong decision yeah. if you do that for sure <laughs> uh, oh man anything else you want to talk about or, or say as we kind of um, wrap, wrap it up a little bit I don't think so I mean I think for me it's been yeah an extraordinary experience it's probably the most significant bit of work I've done in my life mm. I would say you know I like to think I've done some significant things but this is probably the one that feeds most directly into changing people's lives mm. hopefully for the better which is obviously what we're trying to do um, it's the most exhausting work I've done since goodness knows when mm. um, it the, th- the thing that strikes me is, you know, it, it really was a, a, a really terrific team effort. And I know people say that, and it sounds like a bit of a cliche. Um, but all these authors, you know, they were giving up their time free. You know, mm-hmm. they, no one gets any extra yeah. money for doing this. I think that's important to mention. Yeah, yeah. you're not paid for producing no. the report. No, no, no. this is just this part is, of your job. This is just, you know, I get, I get the same salary I ever got. Um, for doing this and all that's true for all of the authors it's true for all of the reviewers it's true for the co-chairs it's true for absolutely everybody I guess you're probably not paying for the travel out of your pocket I'm guessing no not out of my own pocket but that's paid for by um, the the UK focal point so it's not you know I'm not losing money by doing this but I'm certainly not making money by doing this right yeah but the amount of time that you pour into it is is enormous um but just seeing, you know, literally hundreds of people being prepared to do that because they actually genuinely cared about wanting to do something with their experience um, and their understanding, their background, and try and do something constructive uh, for you know, the world, for society, for the ecosystem, for the planet. Um, this was an opportunity for them to do that, and they... they you know, they really engaged and they threw themselves into it. And so, you know, in my role, there was a lot of management and organization involved. But the good thing was that people really wanted to do it, you know, so that, that just makes it so much easier. And it's and it's actually a really sort of inspiring thing to see, just that so many people 
care so much they're prepared to put all their their own nerdy scientific interests to one side mm-hmm. for two and a half three years and and do this thing instead um with no extra reward no extra benefits to them um other than knowing that they've done a good thing so i mean i think that's one of my abiding memories from this mm. sounds like a really uh, a positive experience overall yeah do you yeah. think you'll i mean I, I suspect you will stay involved with the ipcc ipcc process overall do you think um you'll throw your hat in the ring for something again or do you feel like you want to shift your focus for a little while I think I need to shift my focus for a little while probably mm-hmm. I think um it was it was great overall but it was very challenging um and very uh very intensive and I think what I probably need to do is is do a few other things now just yeah. to sort of re- Almost, almost like catch my breath again, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And then, you know, if, if another opportunity comes along, I'd certainly consider it, whether I chose to do it or not. I don't know. Right. You've got to think about family as well. I mean, um, you know, my family were very understanding while I was doing this, but it was a lot of travel. And it was, you know, evenings every week on conference calls and um, sorting things out and organising things and working some weekends and... That's all time not spent with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd have to think about um, you know what's the right thing to do there as well. That's right. Yeah, I think about that when I travel. When it's just my wife and my son. Oh, they're she's effectively a single parent for that time when I'm away. Yeah, and that's that's intense. That's it hard. Intense. Yeah, and, and you know, it's the sort of thing you can do and you can justify because it is you know it's, it's such an important activity. Um, but whether you want to do it on an ongoing basis, whether it's fair to do it on an ongoing mm. basis, I, that's something I need to grapple with, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Good. Well, thanks for talking. Thanks for coming by. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Oh. Thanks, Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome, Harry. You're very welcome. Mm. <laughs> Does that mean I'm cursed? He's got like a... He's got like a... He's a... Uh, he's some kind of contain. Well, I shouldn't spoil Harry Potter in case somebody is uh, still hasn't read it. Yeah, still hasn't no seen spoilers. The yeah. No spoilers. That's right. Uh, All right. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Thanks, Sam. There you have it. My conversation with Professor Mike Meredith, working at the British Antarctic Survey. You can find him on Twitter at Meredith underscore MMM. Like I said in the intro. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and you can also follow the podcast at climate sci pod i'm still on a monthly schedule i'll get about one a month of these produced and out i'll do the the best that i can to keep that schedule going if you can please do keep the ratings and reviews and emails and messages coming that stuff's all really helpful and it helps me kind of continue to do this to do the podcast and to keep it going and it does give me you know some good ideas for potential directions that people are interested in I'll be at AGU Ocean Sciences in San Diego next month in February. So if you're around and you'd like to catch up about science or the podcast or whatever, uh, let me know. Send me a message through you know one of the Twitter or whatever, an email, and uh, 
I can't promise anything. I don't know how busy I'm gonna I'm gonna be yet. Obviously, those conferences get really intense in terms of how much activity is going on. But still, it would be good to hear from you if you'll be at AGU Ocean Sciences and would like to catch up. Okay, take care. I'll talk to you later. Mm, yep, that's all. Bye bye. <laughs>